he thinks it's going on everywhere. And that's already just the 1820s. Right. You know, there's a canal mania shortly after that. There's a railroad mania. Uh, there's this manifest destiny thing going on. So there was just this tremendous push to convert everything in sight. Uh, it creates a tremendous amount of economic growth. Yeah. It creates a tremendous amount of ecological damage. Uh, and it creates a tremendous amount of hardship among uh, the Indians and the enslaved African-Americans. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to the season premiere of season four of our podcast. This is episode 59, if you can believe it. I'm Dave Arnold. I'm Kristen Short-Bennett. And we are here with a very special guest today. But first... If you know the history of the podcast, you know we're sometimes irreverent. We joke around a lot. We talk about the culinary delights of Spam and Billy Squire. And we're going to take a little bit of a turn today. This is a little bit heavier of a topic. And we are going to focus on something that's been on our minds for a long time, and we want to be on yours. Now, one of the things that makes this nation such a wonderful place to live is our fabulous infrastructure system. We have reliable electricity, we have running water, sewage, cable TV, safe and reliable airlines and rails, and we have roads to take us anywhere that we want to go. If we find ourselves too mired in traffic, then we'll expand the highway or we'll build an entire new road just to make travel easier. In my career as an eminent domain attorney and a right-of-way professional, I've taken pride in the very small but sometimes significant role that I personally have played in maintaining and improving our existing infrastructure system. I firmly believe that the right-of-way industry is a key component to what makes America great. Our system of acquiring real estate for infrastructure is fair, it's equitable, and it's based on the concept of paying just compensation for property rights that we acquire. Now, what we as right-of-way professionals do not always realize, however, is that every single project comes with a hidden price to humanity. Despite the benefits to greater society, our projects take an often unseen toll on individual human beings. And even though we might know that intellectually, do we really grasp the human impact of our actions to our fellow citizens? Back in 2019, my very good friend Robert Thomas of the Pacific Legal Foundation was teaching a property class at my alma mater, William & Mary Law School. He posted on LinkedIn that the upcoming class would feature a special guest, a gentleman who wrote a rather unconventional book about property rights in the United States. I believe that there was also an open invitation to attend and hear what this special guest had to say. I was unable to make it up to Williamsburg for that lecture, but I did look into the book that was being discussed. It looked pretty interesting, and I bought it immediately. And along with most other books that I purchased, I promptly placed it on the shelf unopened. Fast forward three and a half years when I was looking for something interesting to read and discovered this little book on my shelf. It's called The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down. The author is Howard Mansfield, the gentleman who visited Robert Thomas's law class in 2019. At that moment, I couldn't remember why I purchased the book, where I got it from, or even how long I'd had it. That didn't last long. I took it down and began reading, 
and it changed my life and my perspective. You see, Howard Mansfield's book is about the unique relationship that American society has had with real property over the centuries. I had no idea how different we were from other countries and how outright perverse our perspective on real property could sometimes be. The book features a series of little-known historic stories, none of which I had ever heard. I finished the book very quickly, and I determined that my perspective as an eminent domain attorney and as a right-of-way professional would be forever changed. The habit of turning the world upside down is now required reading for anybody who wants to come join my team. And you know, I'm going to get a little vulnerable here myself. Um, I've spent 16 years in the right-of-way industry. I have relocated over a thousand displacees. I have sat around countless kitchen tables explaining relocation benefits, listening to family histories, and getting to know people from all walks of life. I pride myself on my ability to build rapport with landowners and displacees, and I would even consider myself to be empathetic to their situations. But this book changed me as well and shifted my perspective on what we do and the people who are impacted. I'll give you an example, and this this might even be a little controversial. I have stated on this very podcast, I think multiple times, that we don't take people's property, we buy it. And I would like to today retract that statement. We absolutely do take it. We take it, and they do not have a choice or a say in the matter. Oh, we pay them fair market value, sure but we take it. And I don't need to lie to myself anymore about what I do to sleep at night because I think that what we do is important and I think it's necessary, but it is not work that is done without tremendous sacrifice by people who did not choose to be part of the process. So today on Infrastructure Junkies, we have the man who taught us the habit of turning the world upside down. Howard Mansfield sifts through the commonplace and the forgotten to discover stories that tell us about ourselves and our place in the world. He writes about history, architecture, and preservation. He's the author of a dozen books, including In the Memory House, which the New York Times called A Wise and Beautiful Book. And he's the author of The Same Acts Twice, which the Times said is memorable, readable, and a brilliant book on an important subject. It's a book filled with quotable wisdom. Mansfield's recent book about property, The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down, and what we're going to be discussing today is a great read, says Professor Robert Thomas, who's a great friend of ours, and he's also a land use eminent domain and appellate lawyer. Robert uses this book when he teaches classes on property and property rights at William & Mary Law School. Howard, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you on our show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really, really pleased to be here. Well, not as half as pleased as we are. Um, we have proof of life here. We've got we've got the book. We've read it. We've passed it along to everybody we know. And what we would like to do, um, as as we discussed leading up to this, I don't think it would do your book justice to try to to try to discuss the whole thing. So what we want to do is take a couple of the stories that you've told. But before we get into that, can you tell us tell our listeners in your own words what this book is about? Yeah, the habit of turning the world upside down is about our belief in property and the cost of that belief. And here's why that matters. Property is liberty. The pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of property and the two are entwined. And this shows up really clear when you go to the early republic, the founding of the republic. Because when you're reading about liberty in the early republic, you're reading about property. And when you're reading about individual freedoms... You're reading about property. And when you're reading about the framers of the Constitution setting up this government of divided sovereignty, you're reading about institutions that are designed to protect property. They sought stability. They sought protection against tyranny. So 
Property defines your fate in the New Republic. Indians are said by the white settlers to have no property. Not true, but that's what they thought. Africans, as we know, were considered property. They were enslaved. And women were chattel property. So property defines all relations. It's a good way of getting sort of the heart of the matter into what drives American history. You know, as proud as we are of our country and our heritage, that's a very inauspicious start. Wouldn't you say? Sorry, <laughs> we, were, we were backwards. I mean, we were we 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 hatched our our current civilization in North America in some very backwards fashions, and we're going to get into some of that when we talk about the Dismal Swamp. Yeah. Now, why did you feel compelled to write the book? You know, I I go out and do a lot of reporting uh, for different magazines and newspapers, and. There I was uh, covering a natural gas pipeline coming through. Then I was covering a, a big power line. I was trying to come down from from Quebec through New Hampshire. And I'd be at these kitchen tables again. It always seems to happen at the kitchen table with these families. And they were so anguished. And I thought, you know, this is this is deeper than, you know, kilowatts and, and, and how much natural gas is needed and all these projections. And, you know, something about this upheaval felt familiar to me. And I realized I was witnessing just this essential American experience, you know, the world turned upside down uh, in terms of that one word property. And here it is. It's something that people believe they have complete control over. And then one day they're told they're not, you know, we call it real estate for a reason. So that that's why. Was there a particular interaction or, or situation that prompted you to start writing the book? Yeah, well, there was. Two, um, there was this thing in New Hampshire called Northern Pass. Hydro-Quebec, which I believe is the second largest utility in North America, wanted to uh, have a tremendous amount of hydropower, which sounds benign, but actually they flooded an area of like three quarters or two thirds the size of Germany up there. It stopped waterfalls that are close to the size of Niagara Falls. I mean, it's a big thing. Anyway, they want to bring this power to the Boston markets, which makes sense, but there's ways to do it. And they chose sort of one of the worst ways, which is trying to just cut up the countryside. So I was with those people up there. And then down in Massachusetts, Kinder Morgan, which I believe is down your way in Texas and is, I think, the largest utility provider in, in North America. None of us have ever heard of it. Um, they came through in a rather aggressive way, town by town with a natural gas pipeline, just showing up on people's driveway and say, hey, you want wow. to sign this? We're coming. Wow. You know, really rough. I think both of you would probably having read that chapter, probably say, well, that's not the way to do it. So I got involved with both those things, covering it, trying to understand it, trying to present it in some depth. And that's that's where I was thinking about it primarily. Well, Howard, where did you find the stories? Where did you get the stories? And how did you choose the particular stories that you told in this book? Yeah, that's always that's always an interesting question. Um, you want the story itself to resonate, and I want a magazine editor to pay for me to go there and talk <laughs> to these people, obviously. Right. But you want the story to also be representational to have like a deeper significance beyond this particular confrontation or problem. So that's what you're just always weighing that kind of thing. Well, after writing the book, make no mistake, the stories are told from the property owner perspective. At least yeah, they are very strongly so. Yeah. So so after all the research that was required in putting this book together and and writing it and and creating this great accomplishment. How do you feel personally about people who do what we do, who are in the camp of the condemning authority, who work for the companies, who work for the utilities, who work for the departments of transportation? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you have this question you're always asking people, your favorite question, Dave, you know, is is eminent domain good or bad or good or evil? <laughs> yeah. I think it is. Right. Yeah. And, uh, 
and to me, I think it's like a necessary monster. Too often it's executed in a Bigfoot kind of manner. Right. But the real problems are upstream. In other words, by the time you guys show up at the doorstep, so to speak, there's a lot of things behind it that were not done right. Uh, and I think there's three reasons, if I can go into uh, sure. sort of three contradictions that are laid at people's doorstep all of a sudden. One, in whatever it is that you're representing, often citizens were not represented or poorly represented. Right. Pipelines are a classic example. FERC, you know, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to this date, has never met a pipeline they didn't love. Uh, and <laughs> so they, and citizens' input in, into what FERC is doing is minimal. So that people are roiled up. Uh, the second thing is... Before you get there, whatever the project is, a road, power line, whatever, there's an, immediately out of the get-go, there's an adversarial relationship. Sometimes like the company's almost thinking if it's a company or the government, a blitzkrieg approach. We're here. This is happening. Get out of our way. We'll compensate you as best we can. But no one ever tries like a method seeking consensus. Why don't we sit down and start trying consensus first? Now, I know what the immediate thing you might say against is. I've got hundreds of millions of dollars here sitting, ticking. I can't you know, sit around while you have a kumbaya moment. But if you think of how much time some of these projects are held up in court when this adversarial thing sets yep. in. That's and I, the third thing is, and this is uh, just to touch on this. I think it's the compromise of the progressive era. So you go back to the progressive era, beginning of the 20th century, the great movement that gave us direct election of the Senate because it was a millionaires' club then, and that really worked. Um, you know, women suffrage, all this kind of stuff, and they create these things called utilities. Right? They didn't want the countryside cut up like as it were in the railroad era. So in other words, I'll give you a monopoly in your area to run the Dave and Kristen power company, right? Right. And you accept the monopoly and then I regulate how much money you can make and so forth. So right away, you're a private company, but you have to also act in the public interest. And that is a very uncomfortable kind of thing. And so all those things show up at the doorstep when the right-of-way professionals are there. And it's none of their doing. They're there to execute it. So I think, I think sometimes you guys just sort of get a, a bad rap. Sometimes it's well-deserved, I, and I, I will be the first one to tell you that my job is not to get the best deal. My job is to hit the bullseye as far as just compensation is concerned as an attorney. I'm not an insurance defense lawyer. It's my job to ensure that the Constitution is protected, particularly the Fifth Amendment. Now, Howard, before we get into the stories, yeah, I want to cover a little bit of the difference between America's relationship with real property versus the rest of the world. You said in your book, and I, I kind of glanced over it, and Kristen brought this, this statement back up to me when we were talking about this podcast. You state that American law favors property in motion. Property in yes. motion. What does that mean, and why is that significant to us? It's hugely significant, and it's it's like the air we breathe. We just take it for granted. Well, we believe in a fluid, tradable property, not in the old world, which America emerged from, right? Property was frozen. Everything was locked down. It was feudalism, and you could call feudalism property at rest. All social relations are locked down. You don't move from your station in life, right? The land is the family. You can't sell it. You know, which is, I think, maybe half of Masterpiece Theater. It's not like you can just put it on the market and leave. So removing all these restrictions, which fell away really fast during the revolution, was how Americans created this tradable, commodified property. 
it's a commodity, right? You buy it, trade it, sell it, which people listening to your podcast, well, of course it is, right? right. But here's what feudal property required. This is really, you had all these privileges and rights that you had to attend to with your property and have these all these weird names. There was night service, there was a skewage, there was burgage, there was Frank Moyne, there was Avison, there was ties to the clergy. There was what they were called incorporeal hereditaments. So you had all these obligations, but then you throw all that out, it's a product you, and you try to, Survey the land so that one lot is like another lot, so you can trade it back and forth. Uh, the great historian of the early republic, Gordon S. Wood, he said this, he said, indeed, the entire revolution could be summed up by the radical transformation Americans made in their understanding of property. So it happens. It's a big change. Right. But we had so much of it when we got started centuries ago, I, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, if you look at the founding fathers, they were just in, rabid land speculators and people are trading thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres that are obtained in some pretty rough and tumble ways uh, with the eviction of the you know Native Americans, uh, all sorts of with using enslaved labor. The whole thing is right there. Yeah. This episode is proudly sponsored by my company, Blackbird Right-of-Way. Blackbird specializes in relocation assistance services nationwide, and we are striving to undo the habit of turning the world upside down. We deliver all relocations on time and with the human touch. Whether it's one parcel or 100, anywhere in the country, we are here to provide top-notch, compliant relocation assistance services. Find us at blackbirdrightofway.com. That's blackbirdrightofway.com. Kristen Bennett and I sure hope that you're enjoying this episode. When you finish this show, please check out our new website at infrastructurejunkies.com. That's infrastructurejunkies.com. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list. Also, follow us on the Twitters at IJPod, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and we're even on TikTok. You can find us anywhere. Thanks for listening. Well, we'd like to turn to some of your stories, and we want to focus on two of them in this yeah. episode. And the first one is called The Ballad of Romaine Tenney. And Romaine, we did research outside of your book on this guy just to get a better or better feel. Although, yeah, see some pictures. Yeah. We, we've seen some pictures. We'd love yeah. to have one that's not copyrighted to share on the website. Um, yeah. So what we would like to do is, is you did the research. You very eloquently told the story of Romaine Tenney. And it is a, oh my gosh. It's a tough one for someone in our seat to listen to, okay? So what we would like you to do is to recount the ballad of Romaine Tenney in your own words from your book. Okay, so it's the summer of 1964, right? The interstate highway system is being built all over the country at a rapid pace. This is a huge transformation of America. The largest peacetime public works project yep. in the world to that point, right? Everyone just about is in agreement that this should happen. It's kind of unanimous consent. There's a lot more places to build in the country also because it's what, 160 million Americans as opposed to double that or more today. Right. So Romaine Tenney, he's a Vermont farmer. He lives in the Connecticut River Valley where the river separates New Hampshire from Vermont in a small town. And he's a bachelor farmer. He's a classic Vermont bachelor farmer. He milks 25 cows or so by hand on his farm in the Scutney, Vermont. He has no electricity in his house. Wow. He uses no gas powered machines. He cuts his firewood with an ax and a sword. He cuts his hay with workhorses. He didn't own a tractor. He didn't drive a car. 
He loved farming. He was a beloved figure. He was in a way the Vermont, a lot of people want to go and find, you know, someone true to tradition. Well, Interstate 91 is plotted. They're siding down. They side it right on his barn and it's going to run right through his house and barns and everything. He doesn't want to leave. I mean, you talk about just compensation. Money doesn't mean anything to him. He just loves this land. It's a love of land. This is where he wants to be. He wants to spend every hour with his animals, with the land. He's just perfectly at home. He won't leave. The, the highway's coming up and up and up the valley. They're blasting pretty soon within 100 feet of his house. And eventually the sheriff and his men have to arrive and take the horse harnesses, everything out of the barns and tell Romain he has to leave the next day. He doesn't leave. That night, he um, frees his animals from the barn, turns out his favorite dog, Spot and Prince, his two dogs, sets the place on fire and takes a gun and shoots himself and kills himself. Mm. Total shock. In fact, talking to people still today up around then, people are still upset about it. Just, it was a national news story. It was clearly not the outcome anybody would have wanted to happen. So there it is, a man run over by a highway. You know, history came to his door. Well, two two points. Um, the, the first is is how did that highway or that interstate come to run through his property? I remember that part of your mm-hmm. of your chapter. I was told by one of his nephews. He had a lot of nephews and nieces that he knew the surveying crew, and they were coming in this case down the valley, and they, the surveying crew, and they said, "Let's just get one more site for the day." All right, let's take it on that barn over there. So they just sighted his barn because it was there. And that's how the highway came there. Now, you could have moved it a half a degree one way or another and probably missed his fields. You can't miss everything because the highway has to go someplace. But there are adjustments that could be made along the way. So that's that's how it came to run right smash through his house and barns and everything. Well, the, the other thing that came to me when I was reading this chapter is, come on, man, you're going to get some just compensation here. Um, land wasn't nearly as expensive back then. You can just move. Now, Howard, I know that I know that money didn't make Romaine tick and he didn't really want a nicer place. He wanted his family property. Yes. But tell us why this didn't work for him financially. Well, one of the reasons is the property was owned among, uh, I think, uh, I don't have it in front of me, was it eight or 10 different heirs? Yeah. That was one thing, which is, it's on the family side. And the other is, it's, the farm is the land. I mean, it's what it is right there. There's no real equivalent to go to another farm. And the house was like an old stone house that had been uh, updated with Gothic accoutrements in the 19th century, early 20th century. So there was really no, there was no equivalent. You know, it was the it was the role of these fields. It was these springs. It was the view here. It was the hay he cut. It 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 was the rhubarb he brought in. Whatever, it was what he did with his cows. I mean, it was just that place. It wasn't like you could trade it for another place. It was untradeable. Right. A land is unique. We hear property owner lawyers say that all the time that all land is unique. But going back to your first point, answering this question, I I think correct me. I think he had a lot of siblings. He had a tremendous number of siblings. Yeah, I, think, and, I forget. I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, like, and, and he was like, it was like eight or nine, or I don't know. It was a lot, but yeah. he was he was number four of he was one yeah. of many, and, and they all held the land in in common. But he's farm. Yes. Yes, yeah. and his mother lived with him for a while, I guess, until he couldn't take care of her, and then Went she moved out, and then I guess there was a family agreement, and this is Dave speculating, there was a family agreement that Romaine could stay there because his nephews I and nieces, so. I think so. Yeah. they'd all come and visit, they'd all come check out yeah. the land. But here's the point to the listeners, is this is that 
hidden impact that we talk about. You think, okay, here's this old guy. Uh, Hey, listen, man, we're going to get you a better place. It's going to have electricity. It's going to have running water. And lesson number one is you can't assume you know what the landowner really wants or needs. And this guy, I don't think he wanted the electricity. Exactly. He would value those things differently than you would. Exactly. And then the second thing that we don't see, the second lesson from this story, is you don't know what their financial situation is. And we have to run title on any property that we obtain, so we should know he would be one of nine heirs. But yeah. Is the right away professional? Are you really thinking? Well, he a jury gave him thirteen thousand dollars. By the way, I think originally yeah. DOT was going to give him ten, and a jury raised it to a whopping thirteen thousand dollars for a farm. Yeah. That's your parsimonious Yankees, right? <laughs> but so then, what's he supposed to do with one sixth or one eighth or whatever his percentage would be? What's he going to do with yeah. that? Exactly. Well, true. I agree with that. Yeah. I got to jump in here, people. Okay. So I will tell you, first of all, when I opened this chapter and started reading through it, I was waiting in my car for my child who was finishing a clarinet lesson. And I read this whole chapter sitting in my car. And at the very beginning, you state that it's 1964. So I'm like, whoa, that's six years before the Uniform Act passed. So it would be a totally different situation now. And I arrogantly thought, you know, if I had been around, I would have just made everything okay for Mr. Tinney. Well, I finished that chapter. I set the book down in my lap and I wept. Okay. Oh my. Wept wow. because with what I do, I can show up and say, Hey, don't worry. You have to move. There's a separate bucket of money for you for relocation. Yeah. And yeah. at post 1970, if this had been the same situation, we would have found a comparable. Okay. It would have been decent, safe, and sanitary. It would replace the space that he had. It would be functionally equivalent. I'm using air quotes for those listening. And I would have said, okay, you can take your 13000 plus some more money that we have this other bucket of money for you, and then we'll find you a nice, safe place to live. But Mr. Mm-hmm. Tenney didn't need a relocation agent to be his savior. And I could have brought him a hundred buckets of money, and it didn't fix the problem. The problem is there's no replacement for family history, for heritage, and for the peace that is found when your home is your lifelong sanctuary and your only known way of life. There is no replacing that. And I think uh, the other thing is when we're talking about a partial interest owner, I don't want to get too in the weeds on relocation, but he would only get a little bit of the money, his percentage of the acquisition money, and then our supplement. So he still wouldn't be able to replace something that was comparable. Period. End of story. So, you know, like I said, I feel like I've sat around a lot of kitchen tables and gotten to know people and I've had empathy for people, but this story told a different tale for me. And I will tell you, I'm going to frame a picture of Mr. Tenney and put it in my office because it it meant that much to me. But I want to say a couple of things. First of all, hearing about those surveyors just ticked me off. And I thought, you know, in the right-of-way industry, we have such an obligation to do our very best every single day for every single landowner and displacee. And if we get lazy or complacent or we're not paying attention, our mistakes can cost the impacted parties money, stress, and even death. And I'm going to say one more thing that I I asked Dave, should I really say this? I'm going to say it. Oh boy, buckle up. I've killed people. Okay. Really? Wow. That's how I feel. That's how I feel if I'm being honest. In my career, now, does that mean that I, I, Kristen, went and murdered people? No. I hope not. But in my career, over 16 years, I've had two displacees die in the midst of their acquisitions and relocations. Now, they both had heart attacks, okay? So again, I didn't show up with a murder weapon. It wasn't Kristen in the kitchen with a lead pipe or something. 
but no one on the planet can convince me that the stress brought upon these people by someone taking their property and forcing them to move had nothing to do with their demise. And that's something that we have to deal with. And again, I, I can sleep at night because I think what I am doing in my career is important. I think I'm, I think I'm one of the good ones where I, I am empathetic and I do my best every day to make sure that I am helping these people who do not have a say in whether I'm there or not, they are going to move. Whether I'm there or not, their property will be taken. And I hope that my involvement at least makes it as, as painless and seamless as possible. But Romaine Tinney, there was no relocation agent who was going to come in and save the day here. Yeah. And that's the point. And that's why I really encourage our listeners to read this book. I promise you, you will see a different perspective, even if you've been sitting in kitchen tables for 20 years. So wow. Howard thoughts on all that. That's our perspective. Any, right. any, it's very encouraging. It made me, it, it's just, it, it's, it's very moving to hear that you were moved by Romaine and would put a picture up of him and, and that, it's no longer 1964 when it comes to this kind of thing. And that isn't, and, but it's still tremendously painful uh, if someone knocks on your door or you go to the meeting and you see mm. the line is running near or through your property. It's a huge thing. It's just a huge impact on people. Dude. I was, look, I, for the Northern Pass, they want to bring these power lines, I think they were 10 stories tall or something across this farmer's, his field, his, his, his farm and he, his whole family had been there forever. He'd been there. You, he took me up. You could look into Canada. You could look into Vermont. The land rolled away. He'd chose, chosen his life to be there. And it was just magnificent. It was, and it would be completely different had they done that. There were other routes they could have taken, but they didn't choose to do that from the get-go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with Kristen. It, you know, you didn't couch it this way, but I felt a little bit of, I wouldn't want to say anger, but irritation at the surveyors because it almost felt lazy to me. Hey, there's a barn. We're going to shoot shoot it through that barn. It's just easier to mm-hmm. do. Well, lunchtime or dinner time or Miller time yeah. or whatever time it was. <laughs> you know, and so I will tell you from where I sit, it's fascinating as an attorney who has to deal with just compensation because by the time the file gets to me, all we're arguing about is money and that is it. Uh, And and we go back to the engineers and we're thinking, why did you design it this way? You could have saved the department hundreds of thousands, in some case, millions of dollars, had you designed it just a little bit different. And I think that's the message. they to talk to the people there, you know, if they, if they were talking with the property owners long before right. you came along and said, look, we've got this big project that's going to come through here someplace, you know, let's, let's sit down and talk. Yeah. Be a big difference. Yeah. But they're, you know, engineers think differently. They've never seen the back end of an eminent domain case unless they're retained as an expert, which only a few are, but they've never seen the back end and no criticism to engineer or surveyors here. We all have our role, but I think that it's easy to overlook the human impact. A line on the map is different than a line in on the earth or in the land itself. It's two different things. Right. It looks pretty neat and tidy on the map. It looks like it's going to be a great route. It makes sense that way. But when you actually get out there in the, you know, the RW, the real world, it's completely different. Right. Couldn't possibly agree more. Great story. One postscript to the story is I understand from your book that when the project was complete, the family still retained about 25 acres. Yeah, it's off. It's on some of the other side of the interstate. There's like 25 acres sitting on just and, sitting there, I think. And now it's slated for at least part of it's slated for acquisition for a park and ride. Oh, that's a different on the other side. Oh, it's, is it? That's in a different. But yeah, there is a park and ride. It's like a 20 
a 30-car parking lot with one of his last remaining maple trees, which was just recently cut down because it got sick. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, the maple tree's gone, huh? Yeah, I think so. Oh. Yeah, I think that just happened pretty recently. I think yeah. I read that maybe the DOT is doing some sort of a memorial site or something for Romaine Yeah, Tenny? they're trying to get it. That was the latest thing in the news. There was some kind of memorial at the park and ride place, yeah. and I guess they were trying to figure out what that would be. Right. Well, thank you for telling that story. I never heard it before, and I, I, I will never forget it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go on to the next story. One of the reasons I wanted to cover this one is it involves what's known as the Great Dismal Swamp, which... Dismal. Dis, it's dismal. it's dismal. I've been there. And uh, what's left of it is largely located in Suffolk, Virginia, uh, near the border of North Carolina. The swamp actually goes over the border. And I've hiked it many times. And I lived in Suffolk for 20 years, even though I'm in Virginia Beach now. And that swamp, I didn't know this. I'd hiked it. I didn't know the history of the swamp. And gosh, what you know, I, I, I don't have any way to say this other than it's an ugly history to the way that piece of property was managed and treated. So what we would like you to do, another chapter in the habit of turning the world upside down is the adventures of draining the dismal swamp. Now we don't drain swamps anymore, but back in the 1700s, you sure as heck did. So can you tell us that story in your own words? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, the father of our country was an avid land speculator. So he starts out with no money. And at 16, he's a surveyor in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And he sees that these families are making a lot of money buying up this land. So the first thing he does when he has any money is he buys like 1,500 acres. And then he keeps adding and adding to his land, even though it doesn't have money to like for grain for his horse. And, and uh, but just to be clear, you're talking about the father of our country who is... George Washington. George Washington. Yes. G-Dubs. Yeah, George Washington. Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, as, as we were talking just before, the, all the founders were land hungry. I mean, Madison, Morris, Hamilton. I mean, they bought and sold hundreds of thousands of acres. They kind of colluded on deeds. And Washington was a real shrewd dealer. Um, there were laws uh, before the revolution about where you could not evict Indians, but uh, he was involved in doing that. There were bounting lands given uh, to those who fought in the French and Indian Wars. He kind of worked with somebody else to secretly buy up some of those other lands, so he got an illegal amount of river frontage, on and on like that. He was a very shrewd land dealer. So he sees the Great Dismal Swamp, and so in... um, 1763, he buys 40,000 acres of the swamp. He thinks this is going to be great farming land. Everyone around there locally says, you know, what are you, crazy? So he's got with the monk, with 11 others, they form this this company, which has this great name, Adventurers for Draining the Dismal Swamp. Adventurers was like another word for like corporations at the time. And they pay 20,000. They begin to cut the cypress. They begin to clear the land. Washington calls it a glorious paradise. It's certainly not. So you mentioned it was this vast cypress swamp. It turns out not to be good for farming. They change their plan. They start cutting <laughs> shingles, cedar shingles, go to the roofs of in Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, New York. Uh, use a tremendous amount of slave labor. Slaves are dying. The conditions are unspeakable. I, I detail that in the book. And then they say, that's not working. Farming is not working. We're not making enough money. We'll build a canal. Right. So they start hand, having these poor enslaved people hand dig a canal, and they make just a few feet a day. Again, horrible conditions. This goes on and on. They keep investing more and more money in the swamp. Washington's initial investment in the dismal swamp finally turns a profit 47 years after his first investment, 11 years after he has died. Wow. It's an incredible adventure. The 
canal. I think it's called like Washington's Ditch or something. The Washington and Ditch, yes. Yeah, that's it. The Washington, and that's apparently uh, rather ironically the first monument to Washington in the country, the first thing named after him. It was wow. a tremendous misadventure, uh, and which was tremendously cruel too. Well, but shows you the attitude towards land, this tremendous hunger to the 19th century and earlier to quote unquote make land, that we can make all this land equivalent to all the other land and cut it into tracks, trade it, sell it, and make it what we want. Not trying to figure out what is it really, you know, by what's really going on here. So now the Dismal Swamp is still around, but it's I believe it's 15% of the size that it was. What happened? Greatly greatly shrunken um it'd been drained a lot of it's been drained and cut and they're trying to uh, it was uh, the ecologist said re-wet it mm-hmm. and try and re, re and, but no one knows how to do that because no one's ever done that but that's now the great experiment going forward there are other places in this country that have been clear-cut logged that came back like in the white mountains here in new hampshire uh elsewhere that you wouldn't know it there is obviously a change in species in the age of trees but there have been land and places that we have healed so it is possible in given a hundred years, maybe or so. It's crazy to me you know, this this harebrained idea that destroyed that much of something that was such a wonderful natural resource and so good for the planet. There were so many things about this that made me go, "Oh, George, come on, buddy. What are you doing, George? What are you doing?" Come and on. and it, there were just some little facts in that story that I didn't know. Like, for instance, at the time of his death, between him and uh, Martha, they had over two hundred and seventy slaves. Yeah, get that Mount Vernon place going. Uh, Washington Dang. freed his slaves upon his death. Martha, Martha kept hers. Kept hers, and apparently there's some kind of law where she couldn't have freed them, but she had no interest in doing so anyway. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That figure, that line in the book blew my mind, just hearing that that was how many slaves they had at the time of his death. So, Howard, one thing I don't understand about this story, and I, I don't think you covered it directly, but you might know, is uh, back then in the 1700s, we had nothing but land on this continent. And yes. this is down in southeastern Virginia. Yes. And I believe they started with just hacking up 40,000 acres. Was there no other farmland available? And by the way, I already know the answer to that. There's plenty of farmland available. Yeah, that's I can't figure Why? it out either. It's, it's, it's almost kind of like a, a bit of madness or something. Yeah. I, you know, it, why go to such a very difficult place? I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't understand that. I don't, that. Obviously, they didn't understand what they were looking at. I mean, the surveyors would come back from there and, you know, and say that, God, we could barely get this place surveyed. It was miserable, you know? Yeah. Thank God we had rum with us, they said, you know? <laughs> right. I, I, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't know why. I, I, to me, it's, it's, I don't know, it's crazy. Well, kind of like building a city in the desert, right? Whoops. That'd yeah, be there's Las a lot Vegas. of that, isn't there? <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> well, flood, building a house in a floodplain, I guess. Right. I, well, I, the only thing I could think or of a beach. <laughs> is, is ignorance, misunderstanding, or some sort of arrogance. Like, we're going to do this because we can. We're going to destroy countless ecosystems because we can. Or greed. You know, um, my book's title is taken from Alexis de Tocqueville, yeah. uh, who, you know, Frenchman, he came to this country, he's like 18... 30, 1820s, travels around, talks with everybody he can find. And he, he, this is what he thought of what he saw. Uh, he's, he was seeing this kind of thing you're just talking about. Uh, the, the Tocqueville says, it would seem 
that the habit of changing place, of turning things upside down, of cutting, of destroying, has become a necessity of the America's existence. So he sees this going on everywhere, and that's already just the 1820s. Right. You know, there's a canal mania shortly after that. There's a railroad mania. Uh, there's this manifest destiny thing going on. So there was just this tremendous push to convert everything in sight. Uh, it creates a tremendous amount of economic growth. Yeah. It creates a tremendous amount of ecological damage. Um, and it creates a tremendous amount of hardship among uh, the Indians and the enslaved African-Americans, just for starters. Well, if you look to other natural resources, which we've destroyed, like old growth pine. And I saw recently, yeah. uh, on, it was on the internet, it was a picture from maybe the late 1800s. It was two men with this enormous saw who had just sawed down a tree which was 1,300 years old in the Pacific Northwest. And you should mention that this saw is not powered by anything. They're just like... Right. It and back. it took them weeks and weeks to do it. Like, why did you yeah, ever incredible. cut that down, man? But, but yeah, Howard... Is, there's no cane saws. There's no fellow bungers. This is just brute force. But but you could cut that up and they were doing things with it. And heart pine floors were installed all over the nation, which yes. you don't yeah. really have anymore because there's no more old growth pine. But the dismal swamp, what are you doing? You really think you're going to be able to farm in peat moss? Well, I, I would, I don't know. I, I think it awaits a Washington scholar to explain this to us. I mean, it does seem to be an extreme example of this desire to cut up the country everywhere. You know, yeah. Andrew Carnegie was came here as a young man, makes his fortune, writes home to his little hometown in uh, in Scotland, says, "This country's all cut up with railroads and canals." And I think he thought that was a good thing, though. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> all things were happening. He just saw money when he saw that. Yeah, right? he, he, you know, things are happening here. You know, this is great. Back home, you know, everyone's just sitting around drinking whiskey, I guess. Well, <laughs> the, the other point of this story that struck me is a lot of this occurred prior to the, I think it got started before the birth of our country before the Constitution yes. was passed, and yeah. certainly before the Bill of Rights was passed. So there was no Fifth Amendment. There was no definition of just compensation, but they exercised what I would call quasi-eminent domain. They just hacked up whatever they wanted to in the dismal swamp. And yeah. then the only remedy, at least identified in your book that I'm aware of, is the aggrieved landowner or affected landowner could seek arbitration. But you couldn't sue the company. You could not yeah, sue yes, the company yes, for damage. You that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And that must have come out of English common law because that's the only law that was operating in the country. Even after this, even after the revolution, we still had English common law. I mean, you know, we fight this revolution, and oh, what what law are we going to use? Oh, we're going to rely on precedents from England. You know, it's kind of it's just what it is. Yeah, yeah. So you could just run hog wild over other people. You could destroy an incredible natural reserve. And then I would, you know, God, it's so hard to have conversations sometimes, but we need to have more conversations. I'd like to talk about the human toll of this venture. And I think everybody who was a partner, who was an adventurer, had to donate five slaves, five enslaved they people did. to work in voluntarily. And then more later. Yeah, more later. Kept sending them. They kept dying. And there's an account in the book of a first, an eyewitness of a, a freeman, a man who bought his his freedom, and he was a canal boat navigator, I think, and he recounted in great detail uh, what these what these enslaved people were put through. I, you know, it's in the book. It's very it's very tough to read, but mm -hmm. it there no make no mistake about it. It was brutal. No, it was torture. Cruel. It was yes, torture. Absolutely. You can call it brutal yeah. and cruel. It was nothing short of human torture. It was yeah, inexcusable. I, yeah, and hard, yeah, hard like, to read that part. Like I told Kristen when we were getting ready for this, this is 
absolutely a black eye on George Washington's legacy, and there's no way around it. Well, and there's one part where they're talking about setting up the company, and you had had to have so many people, so they were making up fake names. And I thought, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Yeah. I thought he, he could. I thought he didn't tell any lies. <laughs> Excuse me, Mister Washington. Liar, liar, yeah. pants on fire. What about that, Howard? <laughs> yeah, that's what he did. I mean, he did what he had to do. He did. He's pretty fast with land deals. He was a great leader for the country. He was the focal point everybody believed in Cincinnati. He did hold that army together during the war with, with almost nothing. I yeah. mean, he was a tremendous, amazing figure. He did set a tremendous precedent by serving as president uh, and then leaving and not sure. becoming king and all that. Right. Huge. So, I mean, I got that. But he was he was broke his whole life. He had a lot of land. He had a lot of slaves. He almost never had any money. Mm-hmm. He had to borrow money to get to his inauguration. I mean, just yeah, it's kind of crazy. But he sure had a lot of land. Good golly, he had a lot of land. Yeah, he that's what he believed. Land was wealth, and at least one really harebrained idea. Right, right. So <laughs> I think I think Howard that the the dismal swamp as I know it, and I've you know only been there the last couple of decades is when I visited. Probably bears no resemblance to what Washington encountered and tried to drain. I bet it doesn't, because could you imagine uh, old growth cypress trees standing yeah. in the water? And could you imagine the the degree of ecological complexity and the the birds and the species that are living there? And, yep. Yeah. It must have have been just incredible. And at some point, the Union Camp um, Paper Company, which we're very familiar with, used to be a huge employer around here, and then they closed down for a while and then came back, donated 43,000 acres or so. Yeah, to make the National Reserve there, whatever it is, yeah. To to make what we have now. Yeah, which was, by that point, you know, just logged out and beat up as hell. Right. But that's right. the starting point. Well, and that's that's a really good point that your book makes, is that, you know, they're trying to restore the thing or re-wet it or whatever you say, but... I think they, that was the word they used. They've yeah. been destroying it for 250 years. You're not going to put it back overnight. No, and it'll never be what it was. No. Um, That is the habit of turning the world upside down. Isn't it? Yeah, in a nutshell, that story is certainly well, very representative of it. And I feel like throughout the book, um, you showed in your writing such an appreciation for the earth, for the land, for the ocean. And there's a lot of undertone of climate change. Yes, and, definitely. this is definitely connected with that. Yeah, connecting that to all of these stories in one way or another was really touching as well. Um, I thought that was masterfully done, but oh, definitely an undertone throughout the book. Was that intentional? Yes, yes, because it, it, this is... Because property is about drawing lines. Property is about saying, this is mine, that's not yours. But the earth, or as, as it is, it's all about connections, and everything in whole. So they work at odds against each other, you know? For sure. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Our, our sort of our property mind makes us blind to the ecological story of what's really going on. You know, just because I have a line here that gives me eight acres, what is that in the terms of what's really going on? It's nothing. Yeah. You know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an abstraction. Well, Howard, I want to tell you this. Um, I, I picked up your book off the shelf one night. I was looking for something. I said, oh, this looks kind of interesting. And I, I absolutely blazed through it until oh, I got you. to page 128. Page when I got to the chapter, Three Beautiful Days on a Warming Planet, oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. I read 
three, four, five pages of that, and I put your book down for days. And it's not because it wasn't well-written. It's not because it wasn't informative. It's not because it wasn't something I needed to hear. It was something that we all need to hear, but it was so difficult to read. It's very hard to face. I mean, uh, if you put these two words together, climate change, uh, there's two words we don't understand. We don't understand the difference between climate and weather and change. We have a tremendous, all of us, me too, a, a tremendous difficulty dealing with change. Right. But and we know like, yeah, everything has changed. Everything changes all the time. But we, we have this real hunger for stability and hence property too. So it's a very hard thing to face. So in that chapter, I go out with the um, with the birders to that island off of Maine, and he, he takes me right off the boat. He says, see this? 50 years, this is gone. 30 years, this is gone. And then I go, I'm down in the, in the shore of Connecticut uh, with the fellow uh, from the Nature Conservancy, I guess, and this Adam, other guy would go Adam out to this Welchel. point. Yeah. yeah, and he says, see this? This is gonna be underwater soon. Right. Now, what are you talking about? It's a beautiful day. What are you talking about? It's osprey, which had been just about decimated by DDT. DDT's band. The osprey have come back. They're everywhere. They have an osprey festival in town. Things are looking great. This is going to be gone. This is going to change. Right. The amount of things we have to do to adjust, to adapt, to head, head this off as much as we can, it's huge. It's daunting. We're doing some of it, but not nearly enough. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. Yeah, and it's it, it's a shame that it's so politicized. And I don't want to get into the I don't care about the politics. I have lived on the water and or on the coast my entire life, except for when I was at college. And I lived directly on a large body of water for 20 years. And in that 20 years, I saw major changes. Yes. We hold our breath for these storms that come up here. They're worse, and they're more frequent than ever before. And to me, the change is not debatable. You, you can debate the cause all you want. I don't care. But but when when somebody in the course of two decades can witness a difference, there's more flooding. My property was flooded more, and eventually I moved off of that property. So, Howard, tell us, um, everybody's going to want to buy the book. I bought the book. I bought it off of Amazon. Is there a preferred method of purchase, or w where should folks go if they're interested? Amazon is fine. You could buy it direct from the publisher, Bound Publishing. They have a website, uh, or even our local independent bookstore, the Toadstool Bookshop here in Peterborough. There, they'll ship a book right out to you. But any place, any place you want to go, it's fine with me. I'm just glad you're reading it. No, we loved it. We loved it. So, thank you so much for joining us. Thank I would you. like the parting statement to be your words and your final words on the podcast, and this comes directly from your book, as I understand it. So yeah, this is the end of the chapter we were just discussing, and uh, this part just called The Earth As We Knew It. Another beautiful day. I've been out for an afternoon paddle in my kayak at an Autobahn sanctuary, watching two loons feed their chick. As I pull my boat out at the landing, a father is trying to coax his daughter, maybe two years old, to go home. She's wearing inflatable water wings and a beseeching look that says, why leave? This is the best. We'll come back tomorrow, he says. It will still be here. That's the promise that could be posted at every nature sanctuary, land easement, state and national park. And that's the promise that we have broken. <laughs>